21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. In today's episode, I have, I'm very happy to have uh, Dr. Dean Krelars, uh, who's with me. Uh, Dean and I uh, have yet to meet in person, but I know that one day we will. Um, Dean and I are connected through lots of people that we know and love, right? Um, so first people that come to mind, Dean Dudley, uh, Doug, Doug Gladdy, Tim Fletcher, um, Joey, Joey fight, you know, we can, we can go on and on, but you know, I, I'm really interested in your work and, um, I think my podcast, the, the big theme of my podcast originally, it was going to be, you know, rooted in everything PE specific. And although this is going to be rooted in PE, I think my podcast has really evolved into the big theme and idea of sharing stories of people from education and beyond who take initiative and action in their own lives to strive for personal and professional excellence. Um, so I'm gonna open it up right away and I'm gonna challenge you with the question, which is uh, what moves you to take action in your life? Well, it's uh, really simple. I just looked at the society that I've made for my son and daughter and that society has gone from a go society to a stop society that doesn't value movement. And that scares the living daylights out of me for a couple of reasons. That people don't see the wonderful aspect of moving in their lives. And uh, certainly the downstream effects of not moving, which are you know, both mental and physical ailments that develop from not doing that. I can see the future, and uh, most people in the medical world can. And I don't want that, and I feel very responsible for generating this world of inactivity. So I, I do believe that collective action can change it, and so I'm motivated solely uh, by that um, bitter reality that's coming upon us. We've had a very slow and insidious creep towards inactivity over the last 50 years, maybe even 100, and uh, we need to bring back movement uh, to be the forefront of society. Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more. And uh, there was a recent, I'm a big fan of the TED Radio Hour, and there was a recent podcast, uh, and the big theme was a case for optimism. And the host of the show, Guy Raz, had been trying to get Al Gore on his show for a long time. And then Al Gore finally accepted. And Al Gore, they, they started to talk about Al Gore's uh, documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. You know, remember that yes. from maybe yes. 10 or 12 years ago or whenever it was. So Guy Raz, the host of the show, asks uh, Al Gore, do you have hope? Because Inconvenient Truth was doom and gloom, baby. It was all the world is, is, is uh, under tremendous pressure and is going to crumble begin it's already beginning to crumble but it's going to crumble even more for future generations so where are you at now with your level of positivity 
And Al Gore stated that he really believed that the world was moving in the right direction, that there is now proof and evidence that major changes are taking place on a micro level that will begin to have a profound impact as the, uh, as the years pass. So I guess I would return to a case for optimism, the theme with you. Where do you stand right now in your heart with just what you talked about? We, we've gone from a go-to-stop society, now reversing it and going from a stop, back to a, a go society, from a stop society. So where are you at with your level of positivity? Well, actually quite good. I, I take um, great solace in looking at history, and I, I like looking at history and saying, okay, what campaigns, social campaigns, social innovation campaigns have actually worked? Literacy is the best example. 1900 in Canada, United States, and various other places around the globe, we said, hey, everybody should read and write. And if they can read and write, then they can participate in this world. And I certainly agree with that. I'm a professor. Yeah. Well, you can't read and write, you're basically not going to participate in this world. So to me, it took 100 years from 1900 roughly to now 116 years to make most Canadians literate. But that was a persistent campaign. And I've plotted out, and it was a perfectly linear trajectory of increases in literacy with the amount of people participating in the literacy campaign. I think we're five years into what I call the physical literacy campaign, maybe six, it doesn't really matter. So I probably have 100 years to go, but we, uh, but I'm encouraged because everywhere I do go, and I literally travel the globe on this issue, I've seen the fire started. And it has not just flickered out, I've seen it catch and in various locations, and I keep refueling that fire, but I've seen it catch in various countries and in various levels of government, and, and it's flowing. So if I believe that this is going to change, I, I believe it because literacy movement worked, and I think the physical literacy movement is really what we need to make a healthy world. And it's that idea of what you're describing. It may take 100 years, but it's planting um, seeds whose forests we will never see. You know, right. Both of us, I would say, I would say we're, we're middle-aged, man. So, mm -hmm. so what, what is your, your vision? You know, when you say 100 years from now, I hope it doesn't take that long. But even if it does take that long, what is the physically literate world? What will that look like? whenever it comes to fruition. Yeah, so I mean, I, I again, I, I, uh, I look at the um, life expectancy of Canadians, Americans, Australians, and you know, it's gone from when I was born in 1960 till now, it's gone from roughly 60 years of age to over 80 now. But none of that has come from biological origins of health. It's come from disease prevention. It's come from cleanliness. It's come from uh, reduction in, in death your childhood um, so those are medical know-how things and literacy has created, created us to be the most knowledgeable people on the face of the planet and we know that eating well and exercising regularly is what we should do but knowing doesn't mean doing so to me the, the missing piece since we've got literacy working pretty well is to add the physical literacy piece I can imagine a world where your quality of life has risen and your life expectancy has risen. I don't want my kids moving anywhere else but Canada. It's a great place to live. Mm -hmm. But in the end of the day, I can see a much 
higher quality of living standard up to 80, 90 years of age. I'm not really trying to imagine a world where we live to 100. I'm trying to imagine that we have a quality of life that is much better and we're living longer, not just living longer to lower quality of life. Right. So to me, I see a world where, um, where mental health coming through physical activity is dramatically improved, and that's something that is going south on us very, very quickly. The only statistic in pediatric emergency room visits that's dramatically increasing in Canada, it's not broken arms and legs, it's actually childhood anxiety disorders. And that comes from, we are social moving creatures, and if you don't move together, you don't socialize well. And as a result of that, your uh, mental wellness is compromised. So I can see a, um, yeah, uh, uh, I, I can see a world where I, I don't see death and dying, and I can see a world where the mental wellness of people is dramatically improved through physical literacy. Yeah, and movement, and you know, I, I know myself and the way I tick, and and um, there's a, a history of uh, depression and addiction in my family, and I was one of the few from an early age who was very, very active in my family. And um, I, I feel that when I look back on my own life and I think of why I am the way that I am compared to some other family members who've, who've just been decimated by um, depression and other mental illnesses, I attribute it to the fact that I was always active movement and a part of team sport, you know, and that's my saving grace, you know. So I look at my brother who, who died a few years ago from mental illness and he was at his best. He died at 53 years old, but he was at his best from about 28 to, to about 38 where he was physically active. He was working out all the time. He was cycling. He was off his meds and he was the happiest that he ever was. So mm -hmm. I know in my heart that if, if I, you know, if I have a succession of days where I'm not active, I have this mental heaviness. And I wouldn't call it a depression or anything like that, but there is definitely a heaviness. So for me, I know that I need to be active. So what you're describing is so incredibly true. You think of the kids that are locked into classrooms and they don't do much at recess time and they're on their devices. There's, there's a massive element of truth to what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's not just... Uh... There's tons of evidence in the, in the literature on this in terms of exercises, medicine, people. But in the end of the day, there's, uh, you know, addiction is an interesting thing. And uh, I certainly, you know, come from a family for sharing personal stories from an addicted family to, to nicotine. Yeah. And pretty well, my most of my family left this world from nicotine addiction. And I, at 16 years of age, was a very active person on team sports. And that kept me out of the house, out of that addiction cycle. Yeah. And and so yeah, I, I mean, it's there are so many positives from moving that uh, they're innumerable in the published literature. And yet, we knowing doesn't mean doing. I, I I always think of it this way: we are the most knowledgeable society on the face of the planet, but we're not yet enlightened or wise. Yeah. The most simple concepts of eat well, exercise regularly, are basic wisdoms. That nobody follows. Yeah. Knowledge doesn't mean doing. So this is really not an exercise physiology or a neuroscience problem. This is a culture problem. Yeah. And so we need culture shift. And we've we've succeeded a bit 
on smoking. She's seated a bit on environmental recycling. We've succeeded in literacy. So I, I, I'm, I'm still hopeful on this. And, and, uh, and I think that we just need 100 million champions around this world pushing physical literacy, just like the literacy people did. Yeah. I, I posted something on Facebook today. I shared a great um, thoughts, observations by George Carlin, the famous comedian who, who passed away, um, I think, in 2008. But it's a beautiful little, I, I don't even know what to call it, just a, just a reflection. And he stresses all the things you just stressed, you know, that we are the most advanced society in the world, yet there's a huge difference between knowing and doing. He says, yeah. he says we have multiplied our possessions but reduced our values. We talk too right. much, we talk too much, love, uh, love too seldom and hate too often. We've, yeah. we've learned how to make a living but not a life. Right. We've added years to life, not life to years, which is all, right. which is all what, what you're saying. So exactly. I'll, I'll put that little um, story in, in the show notes because it's really a beautiful piece and I'll share it with you afterwards. But I guess there's, our, our phys ed world is being bombarded by physical literacy, physical literacy, physical literacy. And everybody is asking yeah. what the hell is physical literacy <laughs> and what is your definition of physical literacy? And then inevitably it leads and I work with a lot of schools and I'm no expert at all but I'm good at observing environments learning environments and mindsets and most of the schools I work with are obsessed with physical skills because that's what it takes to be physically literate so mm. I guess I want to transition and use this as a bridge over to Dr. Dean Krelar's definition of physical literacy <laughs> well it's, it's funny because Certainly, uh, I'm going to go around it a little bit, but I'll, I'll tackle it head on in a second. Certainly, physical literacy has at its core movement competency. So you want to be competent in as many movements as you possibly can. And, 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 but if you simply teach movement competency, you're not delivering physical literacy. And that's where we've got it wrong in the past. It's not about form of a movement like an overhand throw. It's about how you use that movement in the context of your world throw catch is something that you and I do every single day, but we're not pitching a baseball every day, nor should we. Yeah. So to me, what's critical is to realize that physical literacy has really four components. One is physical competence, of which the most important part of the physical competence part is the vocabulary of movement that you possess. And we want that fairly big, land-based movement, air-based movement, ice-based movement, certainly in Canada, uh, aquatic literacy, aquatic movement skills, etc. The second component is the psychological domain. And that's really talking about two things. One is your effective domain, which is things like confidence, motivation, happiness, fun, friendship. Those are things that are part of your psychology that really drive behavior. Emotions are, are really everything that we're about. Yes. The southern part of psychology is cognition. What do you know and understand? And of course, we've beaten the hell out of the concept of saying, hey, you'll be healthy if you're physically active. So people get that. They don't know how much to do, but they get the tie, but they're still not doing it because they're not going at them from the emotional side. And the last bit of the physical literacy is actually the social component, 
we are social creatures and and we create in this world so many people that are socially inhibited they don't feel comfortable moving in front of another person and i always say in the performance arts because i work in a performance arts sector in circus and we perform for others in physical education recreation and sport you perform in front of others both have audiences but if you don't progress the audience effect for children and adults you're socially inhibiting which is also part of our culture so to summarize physical literacy is not just physical it's social and psychological the outcome of which can be participation in physical activity which is then gives you mental and physical fitness so physical literacy drives participation in activity and then if you participate in activity you get mentally and physically fit if that makes sense so physical fitness is not uh, or mental fitness is not physical literacy and physical activity is an outcome of being physically literate exactly so now let's let's <clears throat> return to that idea this is a, is it the chicken and egg thing i don't know but um i listened to you know shane pill mm-hmm. yeah so I listened to Shane Pill's keynote speech in uh, Hong Kong. So, uh, do you know Nathan Horn? Yes. Yeah. So Nathan, Shane, myself, and Aaron Beatley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were all keynote speakers at this conference in in Hong Kong, and I listened to Shane's uh, talk, which was great. But Shane is very he very much stressed that kids need to be physically competent in order to to participate that that's what comes first is that mm. they, they have the skills to participate they which makes them feel competent and I, I think no no I'm sorry I I believe that everything that we do as an educator before physical skills before physical literacy before all of that comes the relationship with it with the student and creating mm. a warm nurturing environment that uh, uh, that we learn to individualize for each student because we know them and that because we've created this environment they then are more willing to give things a go because as corny as it sounds they feel loved and they feel a sense of belonging yeah. so so what like what what comes first or they there is no first i i i i 100 accept your statement uh, a good teacher makes a person want to learn as opposed to delivering, you know, pieces of information. And and that environment is a quality physical literacy experience, by definition, is exactly what you described. Certainly you would never believe, and I don't think anybody would ever say, that you would ever teach A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You would not stop there. You would go to yeah, Z. Yeah, of course, yeah. And so, so that is a skill. So, so... So when you're delivering competence, you're also delivering the psychology in, a, in an environment which is safe and nurturing to that individual and also appropriate to the challenge because everybody loves a challenge. But if you only give to a challenge of 20 kids out of 30 or five out of 30, that's a problem. You're not really doing a good pedag- pedagogical style. Then. Yeah. So I like Liz Taplin's simple diagram. She's a, a person from England, and she basically made a very simple cartoon that says, if you deliver competence, you get confidence. If you get confidence, you get motivated. 
If you're motivated, you participate, and it feeds back. But it's not anytime you break any one of the elements in that cycle, you cause a person to spiral down and out. Yeah. So in that safe, nurturing environment, delivering challenge to all levels of ability, every child will find a competence and then want to master it and then therefore develop the confidence and feel good about moving in front of others, leading to more motivation, leading to happiness. Because the number one and two reason why people stay in activity is fun and friendship. Fun and friendship. Yeah. They don't become active because of that reason but they stay in it for that reason especially when you know now it's like so for the audience listening dean and i had an, uh, a very insightful discussion <clears throat> about three weeks ago and i was like damn i wish we would have recorded that and, <laughs> I, and i took notes in my journal and I, I and it was it was more just as a pre-show to this conversation actually so that we we could establish some kind of direction and I, now i remember that we you talked about the idea of everybody wants to master something and I, right. I talked to you about my experience growing up, and these are the things that led me out of the house and to, to play with my friends was I fell in love with the game of football and golf. Mm-hmm. And so I had a football in my hands, and I, I was a quarterback and a punter in university, and I punted and threw a football sometimes to nobody, oftentimes to nobody, for years on end mm-hmm. because I loved the sport and I wanted to master it, and I pretty well did master those two skills. Um, golf, I always had golf club in my hand, in the field, hitting golf balls, going to the course, going to the range. Um, but it was that idea that I fell in love with those those sports, therefore I chose to try to master them in my own way. You talk gotcha. about your experience with mastery in terms of um, the circus, right? right? So tell us a little more about mastery first, but also look back on your own life and what was it that you strive to master in your own life? Well, your, your points come really interesting. First off, that cycle that I mentioned from Liz Taplin, confidence begets confidence, confidence begets motivation, motivation gets more participation. If you think about it as a flat level, in a physical education class, you could deliver certain types of skills that everybody needs. But what the beautiful part about this is it spirals upwards, meaning that it then allows, if a person becomes competent at, say, throw catch, say, juggling, I don't care what it is, then they're more likely then to participate into some other skill set and investigate into them. In Kamloops, which is part of Canada, I came into this uh, mother, mother of two, 42 years old, had lived for her kids but not for herself, a classic story in, in Canadian and American society. And then she had realized, oh my goodness, I'm not gonna be around for the grandkids. Her son gave her a climbing pass for three months and said, hey mom, I don't want you to say no until three months from now. Yeah. She took him on. What a smart boy. Yeah. And she took him on and said, okay, the climbing community is one of the most welcoming communities on the face of the planet. And there's a challenge for every level of ability. It's safe and nurturing. Yeah. It's exactly what we want in every sort of physical education class. She went in there, and three months later, she's now, this is now a year later, she's going twice a week climbing. But then from the confidence that she developed, the self-efficacy she developed, the mastery she was interested in. She says, you know what? I'm now going to give a try to triathlon. Beautiful. And she went to the triathlon. So that cycle I talked about actually spirals up. I like that. But if you if you break the cycle down and you destroy the confidence of a child or you socially inhibit a child in a classroom setting by isolating them, or, or et cetera, by belittling them, et cetera, you break that cycle. 
no matter even if they had an interest. So to me, two things. One, you said something which is really critical. In our day and age, we are free-range chickens. Yeah. We left the house after the end of school, and we wouldn't come back until the streetlights came on. So we had a natural ability to find out what we loved. That's now absent in society. So now children grow at the suboptimal growth and development uh, trajectory. With a free-range chicken behavior that we had, we would have more optimal development of that, and also the ability to explore different activities. Now, with overly structured activity settings, and only physical education, and, and liability conscious recess where activity squashed, the ability to naturally grow our motor skills has been uh, suppressed massively. So people like you and I are very rare in this in children's culture nowadays. So we're, we're in a double trouble circumstance that even if a kid wanted to try to explore these different things and kick the ball against the wall to become really good at it, they don't because they're squashed inside, they're, they're afraid of the white van, they're overly structured. They can become physically proficient, which is not physically literate. And so I think that our, the culture is very uh, adverse to this development. So I think it's a continuous process. And I do know that when you give a really good class uh, in phys ed, recreation, sport, early childhood education, or circus, it creates this environment where kids can feel the love of developing a movement skill. And I don't care which skill it is. And you can, you be, it can be a circuit, whatever. And then all of a sudden, you, then they develop confidence. And they realize that mastery is not standing on a podium. But mastery is actually something that's personal to you. Because I'm not a great piano player, but I can play piano. Yeah. But I'm talented to a degree. But I'm not the best pianist in the world. And every child should own that. Every child in every class should feel they have talent. But our society says talent is standing on a podium. And to me, that's part of the cultural shift we have to go away from. Yeah, now now you, you talked about free-range chicken, so I, I've got a chicken story for you. Uh-huh. Okay? You yeah. want to hear my chicken story? Oh, 100%. <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> in, a, um, <clears throat> in a TED radio hour, uh, there was a... A great, <clears throat> great podcast, and and the in our pre-show, you l- listen to an audio clip that I'm going to play for you in a few minutes. But that same woman from the audio clip tells in a different TED talk the chicken story, and what she what she shares is a a some research that was done, I think, by a Yale uh, researcher. So this Yale researcher essentially goes a, a, to a, a chicken farm, yeah, and. Mm-hmm. And he looks for the strongest chickens, right? The ones producing most eggs, well-feathered chickens, muscular. And he takes these so-called kick-ass super chickens and he puts them into one flock someplace like on a different farm and lets them be. Then he takes the average run-of-the-mill factory-type chicken. You know, not so muscular, you know, not super well feathered. They pump out an egg here and there. And he puts them together in a flock and leaves them in a, in a different area. Then he lets them be for six generations, right? At the end of the six generations, he goes to the super chicken flock 
to find that three chickens are left, they're barely feathered, and they have essentially pecked themselves to death. Then he goes to the average run-of-the-mill chicken flock, and they're thriving. They're well-feathered. They're muscular. They've almost turned into the super chicken. Um, so she, the woman shares that story with the businesses and organizations that, that um, she goes to consult with, whether it be education or business, to prove the point that all we are doing in life is creating super chickens. And when we create super chickens, they eventually peck themselves to death because they feel as though they have to wrap themselves in this glittering coat of armor. And they peck themselves to death inside of that coat of armor and they peck everybody else to death because it's such a highly competitive world. So it's a metaphor for what you're saying. That's why I wanted to throw out the chicken story. Well, yeah, it's a great chicken story because um, you know sport has become monetized, right? A 12 month of the year sport campaign for a child that's five years of age becoming proficient in hockey and this is different we've lost all our athletes in society they're physically proficient in one category of skill set but they're no longer an athlete which is really the old way of saying they're not physically literate yeah and so uh, uh, you know you i don't care if people are physically proficient that's a cool thing um but becoming physically literate and physically proficient which is what we do in the circus industry creates a really interesting creature they cre- they become very durable mentally and physically they can withstand the stresses of life and they can bounce back from any tragedy tragedy as best as possible and so to me becoming physically literate of which physical education is a contributor to that um, is a critical part of society to create a, a durable group of people and uh you know, our culture that thinks that success is purely money and things is wrong. We have to value uh, the things that are much more essential and are emotional to us. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stories there, but in the end of the day, hey, how do we regain uh, childhood lost? I just finished a, uh, a talk to a whole bunch of emergency room physicians in Quebec City, mm-hmm. and my talk title of my talk was childhood lost, the consequences, the downstream consequences of a paint-by-numbers society. Mm-hmm. Every single child needs to be viewed nowadays, they, every parent's viewing them, every single child doesn't know how to make a decision because we're telling them what to do. There's no advice on how, or no opportunity to make their own decisions. This has very serious negative effects in our culture and has very important implications for how we teach. And you went you brought up a safe nurturing environment where children can fail and enjoy it yes i have a session i do with juggling with adults and children and i make and i say to people i'm going to make you belly laughing out loud and you're going to be failing so miserably you'll be happy about it but you're going to become more proficient to throw catch yeah and sure enough that happens and the funny thing about it is that failure in our society is thought as the opposite of success which is that super chicken you're talking about yeah as opposed to a part of success. Failure is critical to becoming successful, and yet every single child in our culture thinks is afraid of failure. And we, as adults, have drilled that into them. And so it is a massive culture shift. And, uh, but I am hopeful, because I've seen some, some examples of this uh, happen across the country and in various countries that I'm going, that I've seen some success stories. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I brought my, my son to hit golf balls for the first time. I brought him a few years ago, um, <clears throat> a couple times at the range, but I brought him last week. So here he is. He's 10 years old. And I'm not putting any pressure on him. Just here, here's, here's the golf ball. Here's the golf club. And, he, and he's hitting golf balls. And what he's doing in his backswing is he's looking up at everybody to see if they're watching him. Yeah. <laughs> and then he misses yeah. the ball. And then if he whiffed it and completely missed it, he would look up to, and he looked kind of worried that, that he had missed it and that I was looking at him. I was kind of like, oh my God, I, I, I've never put that much pressure on you that you worry about what other people think. And I, I don't think I was reflective. I said, Ty, don't, don't, my son's name is Ty. I'm like, don't worry about anybody else, man. I, I like, there's lots of people that are doing the same thing as you. You just hit the ball, man. And it took about 15 minutes for him to get over that fear of being watched. As you say, that fear of being watched, that we don't put kids in that situation enough. Um, and, and then he started to make some contact. And by the end, he was popping it out there about 90 yards with the driver. But, nice. but it was just, I felt bad for him because I thought, like, I don't know where he's getting that from. And then I started to psychoanalyze an, myself going, am I, am I at a subconscious level putting pressure on him? And I'm like, no, is he a product of the education system that is all about failure? Like, so it made me really reflect yeah. on things. But um, why don't we move into, because um, you've, you've got some interesting research that we've done, and I guess I will, I will bridge it by saying that the world of physical educators on social media is demanding more PE time. And they're saying, we got to take it to the government level. We got to advocate we got to go to our administrators and beg for more PE time because we're losing it. But the reality is, and I know you know this as, as uh, other researchers do, is that doesn't matter, man. Even if PE teachers get PE once, uh, once a day for an hour, it doesn't mean that it's going to have an impact because it's not being taught in quality ways. So... Right. Why don't you just begin with your thoughts on that, move into the research you've done in Manitoba, and um, just roll with that discussion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, everybody looks at my province of Manitoba and Canada and says, hey, we want to be like you. And in Manitoba, we have um, the greatest number of, of phys ed specialist trained teachers per capita per schools in the entire country. There's not, not a province that's even close to us. So that's one. We have quality phys ed, physical educators. I'm oh, sorry. I'm going to say phys ed specialists trained. Yes. Two, we have mandatory phys ed K-12. Three, we have approaching daily physical education, or at least the highest amount of physical education per week in the entire country. We have um, a, a quality physical education curriculum. And yet, when we look at our delivery of our curriculum, Dean, can no I, sorry, than, Dean, can you sorry? say number one and two again? Yeah, so the, basically, number one, we have uh, the number of physical education specialists we have in Manitoba is well over 700. Okay. And we have 869 schools. So okay. that means that we truly have physical education specialists in almost every school. Okay. Two, we have uh, uh, almost daily physical education from three times a week to five times a week in okay. a cycle. That's very high, the highest in the country. Yes. Three, we've got a mandatory physical education from K to 12. Okay. The only province in Canada. Okay. Four, we've got a very good phys ed curriculum. Excellent. And yet, 
despite all of those wonderful things, the piece that's missing is accountability. And I'm just going to jump right into it. We need to deliver the curriculum and actually measure it. And we also have to say, and I don't mean in a harsh way, we have to value it in each school. So to me, the difference in all of this is that we need quality physical education classes that are being delivered by these physical education specialists to accomplish the key elements of the curriculum, the A to Z, so to speak, of, yes. the, of the movement world. And, and in Manitoba, they've measured the physical activity levels of kids. And during this time, we had the best phys ed system in the country. We saw a 16% drop in physical activity. Despite all of those things. Uh, despite all those things. And when we measured the difference between daily physical education versus every other day phys ed, the only amount of physical activity difference was one minute a day. Wow. So I'm going to submit to you this. I'm a huge phys ed fan. I know through my intervention studies that quality physical education works. But quality physical education doesn't just mean a phys ed specialist. It means a phys ed specialist that's delivering high quality lesson plans every single day in that safe, nurturing environment and not just doing murder ball or yeah. repeated activities like that. So it's, deconstruct, it's now deconstruct that quality physical education experience and what it takes. What it, well, what it takes is the following. Uh, in Canada, I need a phys ed teacher to actually lesson plan. Some of us can actually lesson plan from the seat of our pants, but I'd say the vast majority of newcomers, like in any other curriculum, is going to think, what am I trying to achieve today? What am I trying to deliver? And am I trying to deliver that to every single kid in my classroom, independent of their level of ability. So how? So you can think often that that I can deliver this, you know, a movement competency today, but it, it and, and maybe five of the twenty kids gets it. Well, it should be twenty of the twenty kids gets it. Yes. And so if your lesson plan doesn't isn't designed to create an environment where every child can get an adequate number of repetitions to actually develop the motor competence in that classroom, and I even give them homework, I don't care, but in the end of the day, there should be adequate time to deliver things. That's, that's very distinctly different than what's done often, which is sport sampling. Well, let's expose you to sport. Well, that's not physical literacy, that's not physical education in my opinion. I need to have the requisite skills to participate in an activity, and I should have every person in that, in that classroom being able to do it. And in Manitoba, our K to six curriculum is actually quite nice that if we do deliver it, it's pretty fancy, but I submit this to you in grade four, five, and six, most children should come out of grade four, five, and six with movement skill competency, entry level competency, not proficiency in basic fundamental movement skills and have the confidence to execute them. So if you don't deliver that in grades four, five, six, when you get to grade seven, eight, nine, ten, and you've got now layering complexity, you're trying to layer complexity, how on earth can you layer complexity, which is games and complicated sports, if you don't have the fundamentals? Yeah. So to me, having specialists doesn't do it, having daily doesn't do it, having uh, a, a K-12 doesn't do it, having a good curriculum doesn't do it, unless you actually have the good teaching style and lesson plans that deliver on the curriculum that you're trying to deliver. And we can discuss what that means, 
But in the end of the day, it's really quality teaching in the classroom that counts. And we have no measurement of that, nor outcome of that. And for me, uh, I need that to happen. I want every parent coming up to a phys ed teacher and saying, you're responsible for the health of my child, and knocking down the door of a phys ed teacher during parent-teacher interviews, as opposed to saying, how come my kid's not on a volleyball team? Yeah. Which is what happens 80% of the time, 90% of the time. Yeah. Phys ed is seen as a jock as opposed to a health coordinator. They're the principal guardian of health of children, and that's just not valued in the community, valued in the school, and to me, uh, it is critical to bring that back. Phys ed is all about health. Mm-hmm. And not just physical. No, and not just, yeah. Again, it's physical literacy. It's physical, it's social, it's psychological. And ultimately, those components then lead to a behavior outside of school, which means I'm going to participate in physical activity. So uh, I would never want physical education class to be a physical activity class. That's ridiculous. Nor do I want recess to be a physical activity marching time. Recess is play. Physical education is the curriculum. Let's deliver those things. And then if you do and create good social, psychological, physical beings, you get good health from, from people. Yeah, and I think what want to return back to what you said about uh, in good lesson planning, ensuring that every kid gets multiple chances to to uh, work on the skill. And I think of a, um, do you know the book, uh, The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle? Yes, yeah. oh yeah, 100%. So I love when he talks, and I'm pretty sure it's in The Talent Code where he talks about Brazil has produced all of these great, amazing yeah. footballers not because they're, you know, they played soccer their whole life, but in fact, up until the age of 12 or 13, uh, many of the national level players have never even touched a soccer ball on a large size pitch because they have been introduced to the game of futsal, which is confined right. spaces and multiple touches. So in the game of futsal, Daniel Coyle in his book goes on mm-hmm. to talk about the fact that in the game of fut- futsal, every single player gets 600% more touches of the ball. And that gives yeah. them the opportunity to really, really be invested in and have the time and an opportunity to learn the skill. Right, so how we answer that is we say that repetition-based learning with knowledge of results, as opposed to form-based teaching, kids learn very well if they know the outcome and they can self-monitor and then self-regulate. Errors are part of the same. I don't need to watch a person say, hey, you can weight transfer when you do the golf swing. But if your son was hitting 500 balls, as long as he's not doing something crazy, he can see the consequence of the ball. He'll learn it on his own. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And now you can go the wrong way to a degree, but it's very rare. So at the end of the day, Repetition-based learning with knowledge of results with certain constraints allows emergence of behavior. I can watch you do something very slowly, like throwing an overhand pitch. And if you can do it slowly, that doesn't mean you're competent at it in real life because you need to be able to do it at performance speed. So you have to get past that thinking of looking at simple form and look at function overall and give kids adequate repetitions. And, you know, the, the, that book, I think, went on to say that a 12-year-old Brazilian boy will have 26,000 touches by the age of 12. Yes. And that's equivalent to a 17-year-old Canadian soccer player uh, or 19-year-old. So that means like, they're ahead in 
repetition-based learning by seven or eight years. So we need a lot of touches in physical education in terms of the number of exposures to movement skills. And you can do that by running a class appropriately through lesson planning. We ran a program called Run, Jump, Throw, which is created by Athletics Canada. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a fundamental movement skills course on run, jumping, and throwing, which its name uh, indicates. And when you run those lesson plans in grade five, they're just quality lesson plans. And phys ed teachers who know how to manage large groups, you run them, lo and behold, kids get the movement skills. And and it's not form-based teaching. It's a very well thought out lesson plan. And in 14 weeks of running this, children were able to achieve movement competency for the entire year. Oh, wow. Compared to control schools that did standard programming phys ed programming, which I'll say is low quality. Right. Which, so the, what do you extrapolate from, from that that teachers should apply in their own learning environments? Well, I mean, a lesson plan. When I talk to phys ed teachers in most schools, they're so busy coaching after hours that they have no possibility of lesson planning. So to me, the harsh statement I make commonly is saying, all phys ed teachers should go to school at eight thirty when the bell rings and leave at three thirty. A bit of a wacky, hey, a, a bit of a wacky curveball that one. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but that, go that, ahead. It allows you. Go ahead. No, I was just saying it's a bit of a wacky curveball, but go into depth and delve into why you say that. Yeah. So ultimately, two two things that I'd love to see in Canada happen: mandatory. Recess, K to 6, and it'll be a law. So an hour a day of recess, it should be a law. There should be a no withhold recess policy that says you cannot withhold recess for academic, punitive, or administrative reasons. The second law is that phys ed teachers will not coach. Phys ed teachers will deliver the phys ed curriculum. Because if I'm a person, and I get mostly nods from phys ed teachers from this, by the way, but they, they, they say, hey, but I love teaching, coaching basketball. I said, okay. Coach basketball, but not the 20 other sports in your school. Get sport, recreation, and performance arts after the bell to run those programs in your school. The reason why I say that is that phys ed teachers should have the time. They should be able to go home, have a life, and spend an hour in an evening or two, lesson plan, and then come to school and do a great job. Because it's it's not easy to run a really high-quality phys ed class. It takes a lot of effort to do it. Yeah. Otherwise, you yield back to the simplest type of class uh, setting. So to me, I want phys ed teachers to actually deliver the curriculum and and develop their lesson plans so that they can actually deliver curricular objectives. And that means that they have to have the time. There's no other teacher in the school who stays on weekends and evenings. Who who does? Is the math teacher? No. Biology teacher? No. Music teacher? Sometimes. Language arts teacher? Definitely not. So why on earth are we expecting that from a phys ed teacher to give up their life to coach and do phys ed? To me, it should be a separate process. And to me, delivering interscholastic sports is irrelevant. I'm here to deliver physical education. And to me, that means I have the time in the evenings and weekends to deliver those and develop develop myself professionally so that I can really deliver quality physical education to every student in my class as opposed to the sports stars. So I think that's a draconian statement I've made. 
but I believe that it is something that we have to move towards if we want to fix the society. And, and to me, uh, if you're a great language arts teacher, you contribute to literacy. But every day you're in school, you have to read and write in every class, even in phys ed. Yeah. But that's not true for phys ed. Phys ed, you go to phys ed, and then there's no other movement. To me, here's one other statement I'll make. I want in every school, from after the bell till 8 o'clock at night, 100% physical activity opportunities for every child in that school. Not, I didn't say sport. I'm going to have recreation, sport, and performance arts. Run programming, not by the phys ed teacher, from 3.30 to 8 o'clock. Mm-hmm. So that if a kid wants to, they can participate in activity so that physical education curriculum can manifest and develop through those participations at the school. It could be through a community club as well. But to me, these are vital steps that we have to take because we're not free-range chickens anymore. Yeah. And you know, this is costly because we should have busing at schools that leave at 3.30, leave at 4, leave at 4.30, leave at 5, leave at 5.30. You can schedule airlines. Why can't we schedule busing so that parents can leave their kids at school to do the activities? But I don't want the phys ed teacher running them. I want the community running them. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Now, I want you to take your finger right now. I see you. I'm looking at you on Skype. And I want you to draw a Venn diagram in the air in front of your face. Okay. Okay. Am I doing it? Yeah, yeah, I see it. Okay, good. So now, um, in your Venn diagram, I want you to write sport on one side. I want you to write PE on the other side and the intersecting space. Mm. I want you to talk about um, are these mutually exclusive? To what extent in the Venn diagram do they do they overlap? Because there's a perception out there that yeah. sport is PE. So, right. so is it a Venn diagram at all or two separate circles or connected slightly or like, give me your thoughts. Right. Yeah, so, so great question and, and I think it's critical and I kind of alluded to it already, my answer. As soon as you say multi-sport experience, you're being 100% exclusionary. Yes. 100%. You're basically saying kids who are in performance arts, which could be dance and or circus, you're not welcome here. So if you don't say, and 100% schools that run interscholastic sport are being non-physical activity inclusive. So I would chastise every school that has that and say, hold it now. So you don't want circus kids? You don't want dance kids? And if you all of a sudden start to say that dance is sport, I'm going to say that all sport is circus. And people won't like that. So to me, every child should have a physical activity opportunity. If you choose to ride your bike to school, you're not participating in sport, you're doing active transport. Yeah. So I say leisure time physical activity pursuits, that's what I call it, and leisure time physical activity pursuits is what physical education should be associated with. Right. And that we in physical education are the people uh, developing the necessary, equipping the children with the necessary physical literacy to choose the activity they want to do not the sport they want to do. Right. So, it, But it could also be a vocation, right? It could be, I want to be an underwater welder. I want to be a, uh, a, a bicycle courier. 
So, or I want to be in the military, or I want to be a firefighter. Those are all physically literate jobs. Yeah. So physical education should be seen as developing um, the requisite skills for activities of daily living, for vocations, for performance arts, for recreation, and sport. So that's how I answer it. Right. As soon as you say sport, you're completely eliminating uh, uh, or eliminating a very large segment of the children that wish to be physically active, but say, hey, you're only offering sport. Well, what about me? Yeah. And people forget that and, and don't see it. And go, well, yeah, by very nature, if you believe in inclusivity, which most phys ed teachers do, most phys ed teachers don't even realize that by offering only sports programs, they're actually not offering, they're not being inclusive. So physical activity is inclusive. And what happens, um, what I believe is that as adults, we know what's best for us. So when I look at PE teachers and I talk to PE teachers and I say, how do you keep active? And, you know, some, all, some are CrossFit fanatics, some, some do ultra marathons, some do, uh, you know, they cycle and swim. Um, and when, when I ask, you know, when I, when I, because that works best for them, they automatically assume that that's what their kids need to do also. So I see these classes set up in a way that, that the CrossFit fanatic PE teacher has forced CrossFit into every single PE class because they feel that that's what's best. And it's, it's a real pet peeve of mine. And I, I try to get teachers to uncover these biases or belief systems to get teachers really evaluating their own um, teaching and, and realizing what's most important, which is what you described. So mm -hmm. I want to transition over to the last part of the show, and I'm going to have you listen to the Meaning of Work audio clip now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you, you listen to this. Um, you still got a few more minutes? Yeah, I do. Okay. I'm just standing beside my stove. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I had you listen to it before. I'm going to have you listen to it again. It's an audio clip from TED Radio Hour by the consultant Margaret Heffernan. I've played it for other guests in the past, uh, but it's all about the meaning of work and and the conversations that we have to have to bring out the best in others, be that, uh, be it PE teachers or students or administrators or whatever it is. So I'm gonna play the clip now and then I'm gonna have you respond to the clip. Okay? Sound good? Yep, perfect. Okay. Now I can't find the clip. I had it all queued up and ready to go. Um, so just give me a second here. I'll probably cut this this part out, uh, Dean? That's fine. Okay, I got it. That's true. I think, you know, you need that great connectedness between people. But I'm also really struck again, you know, the large number of companies I work with, and I'll say, you know, what's the driving goal here? And they'll say, $60 billion revenue next year. And I look at them and I say, you have got to be joking. What on earth makes you think? that everybody's really going to give it their all to hit a revenue target. You know, you have to talk to something much deeper inside people than that. You have to talk to people about something that makes a difference to them every day if you want them to bring their best and do their best and feel that you've given them the opportunity to do the best work they've ever done. Go. Yeah, that clip 
is, uh, resonates with me strongly because this is an emotional issue. It's not an issue of exercise physiology or neuroscience. It's attitudes and values of people. Attitudes and values of people have to be hit at the right level, which is an emotional level, before they actually are going to change. Every Canadian wants their health care, but they don't want their health. We need to be given time in our culture to, to be moving again. And, and, you know, at the university where I teach in physio, the students there, I apologize to them. And I say to them, I am so sorry that you're going to spend the next two years of your life getting a physiotherapy degree to become allied healthcare professionals. And you're going to give up your health in order to do that. And to me, they, they all nod, just like you did, in response and saying, that's exactly right. Thank you for recognizing that. And if I had my druthers, I'd say to my which I have said, we need to give you time every day to move. And I'm a just-in-time dad in a zero-time world, and I work seven days a week now. Yeah. I thought I was going to have a four-day work week when I was back in the 1970s. But it's funny because ultimately we need to tie good health to the right attitudes. And everybody should see that movement is valued in our culture at the highest level just like we value literacy. And, and that means that in schools, the principal believes in it, the home ecology teacher, everybody says, this is a, a quality school that values movement, just like literacy. So literacy, numeracy, and physical literacy should be equally valued at a school. And that's an emotional thing. And that then means that recess, physical education, after-school programming, intramural activity programming, is all valued in a school and, and put at a high priority level. So to me, she's right that we need um, to tackle this at the emotional level. The other element that she did say, and, and was interesting, was the bottom line related to money. She, she did mention that. Yeah. And I'm going to say that she's right and wrong here. I need, in Finland, they have one of the best education systems in the world. Finland. Yeah. I don't know if you agree with that, but they do. So, you know what the tax rate is in Finland? 60%. The average tax rate in Canada is 30%. I want Finnish, I want the Finnish education system. So I want Justin Trudeau, our Prime Minister, to double the taxes. Now he'll be summarily dismissed as a yeah. result of that. Yeah, of course. But if, if, we, if we don't believe that this is going to take money, we're paying for it through healthcare. In Canada, it costs $5 billion for every million Canadians to take care of their ill health. We need $2 billion, we've calculated it, $2 billion for every million Canadians to fix the physical inactivity problem by funding physical education to the right level, sport at the right level, recreation at the right level, performance arts at the right level. You, in order to do that, it's $2 billion per million Canadians. So to me, it's vital that there is a money part of this. And uh, to think we can do this without money is like hand-waving and saying, eat well and exercise regularly. I need to fund the teachers at the right level, give them appropriate professional development to deliver these lesson plans correctly. So even though she's right, we're not driven by money, we do need money allocated to this. Absolutely. Otherwise, this is going to be all for naught. Yeah, it won't work. Um, so. Let's um, transition over to the last part where I put my guests in the hot seat. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, ready. <laughs> I think you are. So uh, I'm going to throw out a question here. And my question is, what is the greatest lesson that you've learned from outside the world of education that is completely applicable to everything you do as an educator? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, my favorite thing, because I work in the circus world now quite extensively, one of the early learnings that I had was I saw something that just, I, 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 I didn't know what was happening, but I, I sat down at lunch at the National Circus School in Montreal, and they have a grade 10, grade 11, grade 12, and then a first, second, third year college degree in circus arts. It's an elite school, the most wow. elite school in the world, produce the best circus performers in the world. I sat down there at lunch multiple times, and then I said, there's something different here, something's wrong, something's right. Yeah. And I looked around, and I went, oh, at every single table, there was boys and girls and multiple ages. Could be grade 10s with the third year university people. It could be uh, a mixture of boys and girls. And I was like, what's going on here? And interesting enough, the reason why, you know, if you went to any high school in Canada, the United States, I don't care what it is, you look at lunch hour, boys and girls are segregated. Yeah. Ages are segregated because of the talent uh, perception differences. Hockey players sit with hockey players, etc. But in a circus school, they all have different disciplines. Every single one of them. Multiple disciplines, multiple sports, if you will. Yeah. But they all sit together and talk because they value each other's talent. And that value, that, that valuing, results in desegregation in our society, which I think is essential for yeah. us to move forward. So that has taught me lots about what that means and what that looks like in a school in terms of like physical education and general school systems. We can't allow that. We can't just say shake your fingers and say mix it up. Every child should grow a talent and every child should be recognized for that talent, whether it's in dance, in sport, in mathematics, or what have you, so that everybody can sit together and talk together and rotate. So to me, that's been very um, eye-opening to the inclusiveness that I saw there and the lack of cliques. Because I think that that leads to bullying and all the oh, like. for sure. Uh, so to me, um, that was probably the biggest lesson that I learned outside of education system, or the standard education system, uh, that has led me to do a number of research projects related to that. Uh, excellent. That's that's a great story, um, Dean. Where can people find you on Twitter? If you just take my name at. Dean Krilars, you'll, you'll okay. find me if you can spell my last name. Yeah. That's the hardest part of my world. Uh, it's a good old Dutch name, but uh, see if you can find it. Okay, that'll be in the show notes. And uh, again, thanks for your time and energy. And again, we've never met face to face, but I know that the universe always, always brings people together. So I'm sure eventually you and I will meet in person and share a pint someplace in the world. Um, so again, thanks for being on the show. Um, I just want you to stay on the line and um, just talk to you for a couple minutes after. So I'm just going to finish the recording. Everybody, thank you very much for tuning in to my Run Your Life podcast series. I hope you come back and listen to future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website. 21clradio.com